0: Good morning, church. First of all, thank you so much for the honor and the privilege to bring God's word before you from this pulpit. It has a long history. Uh, more importantly, thank you for the honor to bring God's word. It's such a privilege. So before we delve into God's word this morning, would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we can spend together as your body. We worship Jesus Christ, because he is the Lamb that is worthy of all praise. Come, Holy Spirit, come fill this place, fill our hearts. Speak to us this morning. Praise in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So, our passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. So, if you'd like to follow along with me, I believe it's on page 1093 in the Bible in the pew in front of you. Now we're going to be reading the entire chapter. It's not as long as Lance reads, but still, I think it's important to read the entire chapter and get its context. So Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after that lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the very same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son came to his father and said, Father, give me a share of the estate. So he divided his property among them. who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My child, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we come to the longest and possibly the most well-known parable of Jesus. It's commonly known as the prodigal son. It's a story that we've heard over and over again. It's a story that most Christians and even non-Christians alike could tell by heart. But as often as is the case with these well-known stories, we assume we've heard this stuff already, haven't we? And we often miss, up, miss a lot of details because of it. Because on one level, the prodigal son really is a very simple story, isn't it? It has a very clear message, which is not always the case with Jesus' parables. But the beauty of this parable is that a young child is able to understand the message of grace that it tells. And at the same time, you could study this parable your entire life and only scratch the surface of what it has to teach and so my goal this morning is to look at this old familiar story with some fresh eyes and hopefully bring to light a few elements that we may have missed as modern-day readers. I also hope for us to once again just simply marvel at the grace of God. And Lastly, as we reflect on the different characters in this parable, I pray that as God's people we stop, reconsider our ways, and change our behavior. So while this parable is often called the prodigal son, like we mentioned, he's clearly not the only character in this narrative. There are indeed three main characters, the father, the older son, and the younger son. This morning, I'd like to focus on all three of those characters and see what each has to teach us, because each character represents a specific person or group or a way of thinking. So with that said, maybe a more fitting title for this parable should be this, the father and the two lost sons. Yeah, two lost sons, not just one prodigal son. So as we make our way through this parable and read it with fresh eyes, I encourage you to consider the father and his two lost sons and think about who they might represent, not just in their original context, but also who they represent in our own modern-day context. So Luke opens up this narrative by telling us that tax collectors and sinners were gathered around Jesus and that he even ate with them. And By the time we get to this story in Luke's Gospel, Luke has made a habit of telling us that Jesus has made a habit of eating with tax collectors and sinners. A few weeks ago, we heard the story of Zacchaeus, maybe the most infamous of biblical tax collectors, whom Jesus also ate with. Why does Luke start this narrative with this information, do you think? I don't think it's in any accident that Luke tells us that Jesus habitually eats with sinners and tax collectors. But you must see, in the first century, meals were a very, very big deal socially. And to eat a meal with someone meant to share life with them. Who you ate with was a reflection on you and your character. And if you ate with or associated with the wrong people, it affected your social standing. It's slightly different today, but we essentially do the same thing, don't we? We do it in different ways. Think about it. We as a society are so careful about how we portray ourselves online or or who we're seen with. Certain people make us look good, and we want to be seen with them. And certain people make us look bad, and we avoid them. Think about who the people are in our society that we steer clear of. Maybe out of fear that we may be judged by being seen with them. So when Luke tells us that this rabbi Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, the lowest people in that society, it's meant to get our attention. The Pharisees and religious leaders' indignation at Jesus for doing this is no secret because they've often criticized him throughout Luke's gospel for doing it. And so Jesus, in response to that indignation, tells three parables, which we just read. And the purpose of these parables is to explain to those Pharisees and the teachers of the law exactly why Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. So it then follows that the intended audience for this parable is not primarily the tax collectors and sinners, but the religious elite, are criticizing Jesus. In order to set up the parable of the father and the two lost sons, Jesus tells two shorter parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And in both of these parables, do you notice Jesus that uses characters who would have been considered second-class citizens in the first century, a shepherd and a woman. But in both parables, the shepherd and the woman go to great lengths to find that one missing sheep and that one missing coin, even though they have an abundance of both. And they celebrate when they find that one seemingly insignificant coin and that one seemingly insignificant sheep. These two parables are meant to set the stage for the third and final parable, the father and the two lost sons. Jesus opens this parable by stating that a man had two sons. And now the theme of two sons runs deep through the Old Testament. And I'm sure that the Pharisees and the religious leaders would have immediately thought of this two-son pattern that runs throughout the Old Testament. But in biblical times, it was traditional for the oldest son to receive most of the inheritance and who was entrusted as the new patriarch of the family after the father died. But in this Old Testament, there's this pattern that I mentioned. It's flipped on its head with famous, or maybe more appropriately infamous, brother duels. In these Old Testament stories, it is the younger son, not the older son, who was chosen by God over the older. Think of some examples. Adam, he had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain was the older, but he was the bad son. Abel was the younger, but he was the good son. Abraham, the father of the patriarchs, had Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael, though older, did not receive the inheritance. Isaac, being the younger, did. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the older, but didn't receive the inheritance. Jacob, being the younger, did receive the inheritance. And so you see, it's not uncommon for God to flip what we think is normal on its head and flip it upside down he did it in the old testament and he does it still today the text then tells us that this younger son came to his father and i'm sure the pharisees and the teachers of the law were thinking they know where this story is going cuz jesus as a good rabbi knew his scriptures and knew this son two son pattern that we just mentioned they're expecting this younger son to supersede the older son and become the chosen son. But instead, the son demands, Father, give me my share of the estate. Even by today's standard, the son is clearly out of line to demand that his father give him his inheritance before he's dead. And when he is asking for his share of the estate, he probably doesn't mean cash. But rather, he's demanding part of his family's land be given to him. Land that has probably been in the family for generations. The only time land would have been divided between two sons would have been after the father died. And even then, it would have still stayed within the family because land is what fed the family. Land was a family's livelihood. In other words, what the younger son is saying to his father is this, I wish you were dead, father, and I don't want to be a part of this family. The younger son is clearly out of line, right? But any good and respectable father wouldn't have tolerated this behavior because it would have brought shame upon the family. And it was the duty of the father in biblical times to honor that family, the household. Even today, we still use words and honor in certain contexts. But I think in biblical times, the culture of, uh, the cultural value placed on shame and honor, it, it just cannot be overstated. Think of it this way. For someone to bring shame upon themselves, or even worse, their family, would have been an almost unforgivable sin. One author likened shame to a death sentence. And so one would expect the father, especially the Pharisees and teachers of the law, to say, no way, to his son and even punish him for even asking, because that's what the law of Moses would have required. Once again, Jesus shocks the Pharisees and these religious leaders by telling them that the Father divided his property among them. And the Father so easily gives into to his son. And it, honestly, it just leaves you shaking your head. Why would he do this? And imagine the frustration of the older brother at this point. Just think about it. His little brother just seized a portion of his family's land, their wealth, their livelihood, simply to fulfill his own selfish desires. Furthermore, his father let it happen. doesn't seem fair, does it? You can kind of feel for the older brother at this point. You know how the story goes. Son likely liquidates the land into cash, goes off to a foreign land, getting as far away from his family as he can. He then quickly squanders everything that the Father has so graciously given to him on licentious living. And a famine hits the land. The son quickly becomes so desperate that he's hired by a Gentile to feed pigs, an unclean animal for any good Jew. So you see what Jesus has been doing with this story so far. He's painting a picture of the degradation of this son, who once held an inherited and unmerited place of honor in his father's house. He didn't do anything. But yet, because of his pride, we quickly see the son sink lower and lower and lower until he is brought to the lowest point in that society. The younger son is now at the same social level as sinners and the tax collectors and this is intentional on jesus part because the younger son in this story represents just those people the sinners and the tax collectors now that phrase sinners and tax collectors doesn't really mean a lot to us today does it but i think it's important for us to consider who we view as modern day tax collectors and sinners in our country in 2019 who are those whom our society pushes to the fringes who are those that we deem not worthy of our time or resources? Who might be the people we think of beneath us, maybe because of some bad decision they've made in their past? And at this point in the story, younger son seems to come to his senses, doesn't he? He devises a plan to go home. He even has a script ready for his father. He plans to tell his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. In other words, the son only sees his father as a means to an end. He doesn't want to starve to death. And even though he has no, he's in no place to make these demands, he has conditions for his father. Now, to understand exactly what the son is asking here, I think it helps to understand servitude in the first century. There are three primary forms of servitude in the first century. The first were what called doulos, this is the most common form we see in the New Testament. These were servants who often served a family and thus had close contact with the family. A second form of servitude were called the paidas. These people did not have any contact with the family and were even lower than a doulos because they often served the servants. The third form of servitude is called a mysthios. They would t- we typically translate them as hired hands or day laborers. And these day laborers would work for one day for a landowner and then go back to their own home and have no other contact with the family until the next day when they were hired by them. It's this last type of servitude, a that the son plans to demand of his father. Why? Why does he choose this form? Because it's a form of servitude where he can get paid and then not starve to death, but also have no or little interaction with his father or his family. So it's clear that while the son came to his senses on one hand, he clearly has not repented at this point. And as the son makes his way back to home, the story takes a turn that the Pharisees and religious leaders were probably not expecting. Jesus says that while the son was a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. There are a few things to notice just in this one sentence. First, it implies that the father was looking for his son and was eagerly waiting for his return. The story doesn't tell us how long the son was away. We can assume it was a while. I think it's also safe to assume that the son may never have come home yet the father eagerly looked for the return of his son. And then when he does see him a long way off, the text says he ran to his son. And since everyone in that time lived in the village, it meant that the father had to run through the town to get to his son. What's so meaningful about that? Well, if you think back to the beginning of the story, this is a town that has certainly viewed the father as a fool for allowing his child to bring shame upon the family. It's a father who has been disgraced by his son. And I'm sure the town has not let them let him forget that. It is a town that sees a father who didn't give the son what he deserved, according to the law of Moses. But yet, this father had compassion on his son, the text tells us. Compassion. The son deserves anything but compassion, right? But yet the father, out of his love for his son, willingly took that shame that his his son brought upon him. He ran through the town and into the fields to hug and kiss his son. The father in this parable is our Heavenly Father, my dear brothers and sisters. Do not miss this beautiful image of grace that Jesus is portraying here. And at this moment, take a look at what the younger son says to his father in verse 21. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Did you notice what he leaves off there? He left off. Make me like one of your hired servants. Why do you think he left it off? I think this son saw the unconditional love and grace his father poured out on him. He saw a father run to him out of compassion for him. He saw a father shield him from the shame that was inevitably heaped upon them by the town. And it was in seeing this grace that the son set aside his pride and at that moment received the grace that was so publicly shown to him by the father. The father doesn't stop there. but then brings him back into the house. And don't miss that one little word there, into. Jesus mentions this word a lot in this parable. It implies that the son's position of honor and authority has been restored. He doesn't have to work out in the fields as a hired servant. He's once again an heir in his father's house. And notice what they do. They begin to celebrate. They celebrate just like the shepherd who lost the sheep and just like the woman who had lost the coin. But the story doesn't end there, does it? Then it instead shifts to the older son, who, notice, is not in the house celebrating. But instead, he is out in the fields, slaving away for his father. You can see the irony in that, can't you? He heard the party that was going on, though, and asked a servant what was going on. The servant replied that your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Please notice that the son refuses to enter into the house. He stays outside. So once again, the father comes out of the, son, out of the house to meet his son. But this time he comes to his older son, who is enraged at his father and says, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. He probably wishes his brother was made a servant, wasn't he? Because that's what he's been doing for years. He's been slaving for his father. And then this son comes back and gets a party. But let's be honest for a moment. Wouldn't you be frustrated if you were the older bro- in the older brother's shoes? Think about it. Everything that this, his little brother has done to damage the family... Their honor and their livelihood. I mean, it was his own choice, right? He went off, took his inheritance, and squandered it. Shouldn't he have the consequences of his actions? But instead of living with the consequences of his actions, it's almost as if the father is rewarding his actions by wasting even more family resources on an extravagant party. Do you know what the older brother is, in essence, saying to his father here? It's the same thing that his brother said to his father earlier. He's saying, I wish you were dead, father. Why? Because he's telling his father that he's a fool for forgiving his younger son and that he would do things much differently if he were in charge. And in this parable, the older son represents the Pharisees and the religious elite. And just like the older son is furious at his father and younger brother, so the Pharisees and the religious leader, leaders are furious at Jesus for inviting the tax collectors and the sinners into the house. But despite the older son's response, the father comes out and pleads with his son to come into the house and celebrate. I think it's worth noting that the father, in addressing his oldest son here, he uses a different word than the more generic word for son here, which is "weas." He uses the word technon is often translated as child it's the same word that john uses throughout his epistles when addressing fellow believers as my dear children father says to his son my dear child you are always with me and everything i have is yours but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again he's lost and is found And at this this moment in telling the parable, I imagine Jesus looking directly at the Pharisees and religious leaders who, again, remember, represent the older son in this parable. And he pleads with them to enter the house and to celebrate that these tax collectors and sinners have repented and entered into the house, just like the younger brother. And that's where Jesus ends the parable. And in a way, it kind of leaves us hanging, doesn't it? What does the older brother do? Does he repent and come into the house? Does he refuse to accept the same grace that was offered to his brother? Jesus rather leaves the invitation open to all who identify as religious leaders. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. Jesus is telling them to put away their pride and receive the same grace that was offered to the younger brother When Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, preached this on this parable, he said this: "I want you to know that the door to the house is open. My dear friends, that same invitation is the one that Jesus gives. The door to the Father's house is open." I mentioned earlier in this parable it should be entitled that the parable should be entitled "'The Father and the Two Lost Sons." the Father representing our Heavenly Father, the question then is this, which lost son do you or I mirror? If you identify more with a younger son, remember that the Father's grace is open to all and that he's waiting for you. He wants to run to you and take the shame that you and I deserve and bring us into the house. Or maybe you are like the older son, You've done all that the Father has asked, but yet in your pride view yourself as better than any modern-day tax collector or sinner. And it's our pride that stops us from entering, doesn't it? It's so easy to forget that it's nothing that we do by which we are saved. But it's only through the work of Christ. And it's during this Lenten season that we reflect on the cross We confess our pride, our arrogance, and our sin, and so may we, during this Lenten season, remember that everything the Father has is ours, and that the door to the house is open. It's time to celebrate with the entire house of God, and celebrate that no one deserves the grace of the Father, not myself, not you, not the tax collector, not the sinner, not the Pharisee not the religious elite. No one is outside the grace and love of the Father. My dear friends, the door to the house is open. Come, enter, and celebrate. And the Father's grace is one family. Let us pray.